are kids really thinking and feeling? Sometimes it's hard to know. The thousands of letters and emails kids send to Highlights Magazine every year help us keep our finger on the pulse of kids. We think they can also help you. So each week on this podcast, we talk with friends and experts about the things kids share with us and about making a world that honors children's voices. Lean in and listen to learn what kids want their grown-ups to know about being a kid today. I'm Christine French-Cully, and you are listening to Dear Highlights. Dear Highlights, I have a problem with controlling my temper. up at night, and I miss him all the I get keys for my Dear Highlights. Dear Highlights. Dear Highlights. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today for a conversation with a friend of Highlights. Every other week this season, we will pause to check in with someone who has an interesting perspective on how we could honor Highlight's belief that children are the world's most important people. Uh, Joining me for these conversations is our dear Highlight's producer, Hilary Bates, who happens to be one of the most thoughtful parents I know. Uh, Welcome, Hilary. Hi, listeners. And our guest today is author, journalist, and podcast host, Stephen Dubner. Many of you know him from his very popular podcast, Freakonomics Radio, and from the best-selling book, of course, he co-authored with Stephen Levitt, Freakonomics. In both, he challenges us to look at the world differently and think about big problems differently using curiosity and creativity. So we are delighted that he's with us today. And I have to say that we here at Highlights had the pleasure of reading his work earlier than most of you listeners. <laughs> Stephen had a poem published in Highlights Magazine when he was 11 years old. And before we talk about anything else, Stephen, we have to ask you to share with us what you remember about that publishing experience. All right, I, I would be delighted. So first of all, hello to both of you and to everybody listening. Um, you know, it is true that um, not only did I publish in Highlights when I was uh, a kid, but it was for many, 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 many years the um, the highlight of my publishing career um, because you know highlights was um, for me as a child as it is now for children and parents a really big deal and um, so the poem uh, it, it was a poem that was published it was called the possum it had eight lines so it was not massively ambitious but you know it rhymed and. So the circumstances were as follows. I wrote it in what I believe was the fourth grade, and I wrote it for a school assignment. And I did not submit it to highlights. I would have been far too intimidated to do that. Unbeknownst to me, my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Barbara Peterson, submitted it to highlights, said, I have a poem here by a young writer that I think is pretty good. I'd like you to consider it. Well, as we all know, highlights is extremely competitive. So it took two years to get into public. So it says, so I'm looking at it right now. It says Steve Dubner, age nine, Delance in New York. But uh, that's how old I was when I wrote it. But it wasn't published until I was a whopping 11 years old. And I remember the day that I learned about this, Mrs. Peterson from the fourth grade walked into my sixth grade classroom. And I remember this moment very well. And coincidentally, that year, not long before, my father had died, and I was having a pretty crappy year. And she came in and said to the teacher, whose name I also remember, Mrs. Ahola, she said, I have, she said something like, I have something to say about Steve Dubner. And I thought, oh, God, what did I do in fourth grade that was so bad that the arm of the law is reaching back 
to grab me, to punish me for this. And it was so lovely. She wanted to announce in front of everybody that this event had happened, that I was being published. It was the most generous, you know, teacherly thing that you could possibly imagine. And so I'll never forget Mrs. Peterson for, for that. And, you know, I think about that every time I think about the people who devote themselves to education, because it really is a devotion. And I really believe it. It really is a calling. Um, years later, I tried to teach. I was going to graduate school and I was I thought I'd be a college professor and teach and write novels on the side. And I realized I didn't have the selflessness that is required of that. So you know, would I have still become a writer had Mrs. Peterson not submitted my poem to Highlights Magazine? I would like to think yes, but honestly, it was a huge boost in confidence. And uh, I'm really grateful to, to her and, of course, to Highlights. Yeah, I love that story. I mean, it's really interesting to, to try to imagine how many writers' careers were launched by teachers who believed in them and helped them believe in themselves first. Yeah, it's not a, you know, it's not a natural act to think that you're going to sit there with, you know, in the old days, a piece of paper and a typewriter or a pen or these days a computer screen and kind of conjure some reality out of nothingness and then persuade other people that the version of reality that you've conjured is is worth engaging with. It's really, if you think about it, it's quite an unnatural act. Um, and so the idea of making a living as a writer always seemed to me like an absurd dream. So, um, yeah, I, I try to, um, you know, you, you try to think about all the people who help you do that. And there are a lot of teachers, there are a lot of other writers, there are a lot of editors. Um, so I think whenever any of us read a really good book or article, you have to realize that that's the person who did the act. But there's probably a couple hundred people behind behind them, many of them teachers. Well, thank you for indulging us in that story. So, Stephen, I'm a fan of Freakonomics Radio. And when I listened a while back to your episode on car seat safety, it really caught my attention. You know, we like to talk here at Dear Highlights about how to make the world a better place for kids. And I think a lot of us have an assumption that kids are very, very important to society, that our systems, of course, prioritize them in decision making. Um, But Listening to your exploration of this one issue helped me realize that that might not always be the case. In fact, a guest on your episode said that kids can get the short shrift in our policy and political environment. Can you share some of the ways that you found that's the case when it comes to car seat, how car seat policies were developed? Yeah, so, you know, the first thing I would say is that the child car safety seat is obviously a well-intended device. Um, We know that riding in a car is one of the most dangerous things that most of us do on a regular basis. You know, we've become inured to it, but 35,000 people roughly die in a given year in the U.S. from car crashes. Um, There are those who say that that number really should be zero, um, given the fact that our technology is you know, so advanced and so on. But 35,000 is a lot. And last year, actually, during COVID, the numbers actually went up with many, many fewer miles driven, which is a little bit of a puzzle. Seems like there were a lot of people with with less traffic. A lot of people are out drag racing and driving faster and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. So anyway, we know that, um, you know, car crashes happen. We know that they can, that people can get badly hurt or, or killed. And so, you know, if you can prevent the life of even one child or a hundred children, it's well worth it to go to a lot of trouble to do it. The solution that we've hit upon is this contraption that we install into a car 
long after it was designed and engineered and built and tested for safety, okay? So that's kind of clue number one that the priority here is not the priority that we might think. I think about it like, um, you know, every time you buy a smartphone, the first thing you have to go out and buy is a case so that when you drop your phone, it won't break as badly. <laughs> well, that's kind of crazy, isn't it? Can it be designed so that either it's not so slippery so that you don't drop it, or if you do drop it, it doesn't break? But no, I mean, different all different firms, all different people have different incentives and different motivations. So that's the way the world works. I understand that. With the child car seat, however, the conclusion that we came to was that this was a kind of, you know, so-so solution that came to be accepted because it looks to be pretty good and it certainly seems to be better than nothing. Nothing being having a child ride around in a car, especially in the front seat, with no restraint. That's a really bad idea. Putting kids in the back seat is already quite a bit safer, but restraint is really important because when you get in a crash, what happens is, you know, bodies go flying about, pieces go flying about. So the only existing solution was the seatbelt. Well, seatbelts, for some reason that is I've never gotten a good answer to, are not sized for children, even though if you look at the data, what share of backseat passengers are children? It's a very, very large share. I don't know the number off the top of my head. I think it's some crazy high number, like 60 or 70%. So if 60 or 70% of the passengers in the backseat are children, why would seatbelts not be built to adjust to a child's size so that they could be protected off the bat? Instead, the solution is this kind of add-on workaround, which is the child car seat. And then my co-author, Steve Levitt, did an analysis of crash test data uh, I, I, we did an additional actual, we commissioned a crash test at a, a, a test facility um, to test essentially a, 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 dumb, a crash test dummy, a three-year-old, I believe, and it was, and a six-year-old in seatbelt, an adult seatbelt, which is not optimized for children, versus a child car seat that's age appropriate. And the data, if you, if you were to submit those crash test data, it would show that the seatbelt, even though it's not sized for the child, um, was just as effective as the car seat. In other words, the extra contraption that parents are required to go out and buy after they bought the car and usually need to go get somebody else to install because they're not very naturally easy to install, they're not really doing as good a job as you'd like to think. So this is kind of part of a long story about the car seat itself. The conclusion, however, that that I came to after using this as an illustration is the conclusion that, yeah, a lot of policy, like you said, Hillary, seems to indicate that we humans, we adult humans, we adult humans who control budgets and le the legislature and things like that, we care a great, 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 great deal about children. Because even if you're not a parent yourself, you were a child yourself. And yet, if you look at the actual policy, you find that that's not the case, that children are simply not prioritized, especially in the U.S. And we're we're working on an episode about this right now for Freakonomics Radio, which is about child poverty per se, which is um, you know built around the fact that we have a much higher rate of child po uh, poverty than a country of our wealth should ever consider having. Um, we share, we spend a much smaller share of our GDP on child welfare than many other countries do. One example: France spends about three times the amount on various child welfare that the U.S. does. And so you really have to ask, um, 
you, here, here's another example. Um, child poverty has declined over time, thankfully. And, you know, most things have gotten better over time. It's just the decline has not been nearly as precipitous as one might like. And if you compare it to adult poverty, so elderly poverty, well, it turns out that that problem has been addressed quite substantially through federal and state legislatures over the past, let's say, 30 years. In fact, the rate of elder po poverty has fallen really well. Rate of child poverty, not so much. Why? Well, one good explanation is that seniors vote, children don't. And that might sound a little reductionist, it might sound a little cynical, but it's hard to ignore that fact. And so that this is just a, a topic that I thought it was important to call our attention to. Yeah, yeah. That's so interesting and, and sobering. I mean, kids represent almost a quarter of our U.S. population, but as a friend of mine says, they're 100% of our collective future. Yeah. <laughs> and we just don't do a very good job of elevating their voices and... Um, representing them in scientific research. Yeah. And, you know, we've been doing this series of episodes um, of Freakonomics Radio about how the U.S. is just different from other countries on many, many dimensions, culturally and politically and so on. And one dimension where the U.S. is, a, is quite an outlier is on our short-term versus long-term thinking. And Christine, what you just said is a perfect illustration of it. Like, if you tend to think about a child as nothing more than a, a small version of us, then you address the, the issues around a child very differently than if you say, well, you know, when we say children are the future, you can't get more literal than that. That is, <laughs> that is really the case. And so when you look at the back end problems that you try to address as a society, underemployment or unemployment, wage stagnation, high imprisonment, drug and alcohol dependence, on and on and on and on. None of those don't have roots in childhood, none of them. And so even if you want to appeal to the most selfish, rational, stingy, older person, you can say, look, you can pay now or you can pay later. And the paying later is a lot more expensive and paying now is also kind of the right thing to do if you're interested in that kind of thing. So I don't think it takes a big argument. I don't think it takes a radical to say what I'm saying, which is that we should probably spend a lot more time thinking about and addressing issues in childhood and a lot more money to smartly, not waste a lot of money, but to smartly address them. And I am happy to report that I think the needle is starting to move in that direction. Um, in the episode that we're working on, we talked to a lot of researchers, social scientists, economists, and so on, um, but also some politicians. And like, look, Mitt Romney from the Republican side has been pushing hard to send uh, money to families with children, period. Not, you know, I was going to say not means tested. It is true that you don't get aid if you get above a certain relatively high income level. I did ask him, you know, he's He's got a lot of kids and a whole lot of grandkids. And I did ask him, you know, to persuade me that you're not promoting this legislation just to benefit your own extremely large family, which has a lot of children. And, and he, he did make the point that nobody in his family would actually be eligible because of all, all of his grown kids are at an income level where they would not be getting any of this child today. So for what it's worth. But I think that, you know, the Republicans have one set of reasons to support child welfare. The Democrats may have a different set, 
But what I like is that right now there are enough reasons that there's some bipartisanship being had in D.C. And so I think that um, the next few years we're going to see quite a bit of movement in that direction, including the fact that, you know, one one thing that we talk about in this episode that we haven't published yet, hopefully soon, is that there's really only now beginning to be a whole lot of research, not so much on the medical front per se, including children, but on the psychological and educational front to show that, you know, by the time you start worrying about um, educational attainment and certain kids being behind in like kindergarten, if you're worrying about it in kindergarten, it's too late. That the, the ages from zero to five or zero to three are incredibly important in the development of a kid, not just brain development and language and social and all that. And so there's a lot more thinking now and a lot of great research going on into that. And I I think it's really an exciting time. I wish it hadn't taken so long. You know, that's the, that's the thing. You think about the generations where this would have benefited. Um, You know, I grew up in a low income household. I was the youngest of eight kids, but there was so much support in older siblings. And also I was, I want to say, the um, the charter class, or maybe one of the first years of the Head Start program, which means I got to go to a kind of formal education program before kindergarten. And then once I got into school, I had teachers like Barb Peterson. So, you know, the benefits of that kind of support, I think, are almost incalculable. And the costs are calculable and they're affordable. And so I think it's time to, for everybody to just be a little bit more aggressive in that front. Yeah, no argument here. We completely agree. And thank you for all your good work in helping us, encouraging us, challenging us to ask the right questions. My pleasure. We are grateful that you spent some time with us today, and we're grateful that you're in the world making us more curious about how to fix the big problems, especially as they relate to children. Um, We are also so proud to have been your first publisher. I want to get that in again. Where should our listeners go to find more of your work? So if your listeners are podcast listeners generally, then you have some podcast app that you like. Uh, There are a million, or maybe not a million, but there's at least a couple dozen. Um, Apple Podcasts is a big one. Spotify includes podcasts now. Um, And if you're not a podcast listener, have someone you know who is show you how easy it is on your app. If you have an iPhone, there's a built-in podcast app and so on. And then, yeah, just search for Freakonomics in whatever app you have. I will say, it's gotten a tiny bit more confusing because Freakonomics Radio is the main show I make, but we've been expanding. We're creating what we call the Freakonomics Radio Network, and we just launched our fourth show, um, which is called Freakonomics MD, which is about the hidden side of medicine. I don't host that show. It's hosted by a wonderfully brilliant um, fellow named Bapu Jenna, who is both a medical doctor and an economist. So that's awesome. But yeah, so if you search any podcast app for Freakonomics, you'll find Freakonomics Radio, which is the main show, which is my main show, and then a, a few others. And we're continually adding to that, all with the the intention of exploring the hidden side of everything, whatever that may be, you know, child, child welfare, sports, business, you name it. So that's that's what we do. Great. We look forward to that. Thanks so much. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. We are honored to be able to elevate kids' voices and imagine a world where grown-ups take seriously kids' concerns and act on them. Whether a child's concern is big or small, unique or universal, serious or sure to work itself out, it's real to the child and matters deeply. We've come to see that in every letter kids have sent to us over the years, there are implicit, 
overarching questions embedded within. Do you care? Am I loved? Do I have a place in the world, a place in the lives of the people I love? We hope kids believe us when we say in many more words, yes, yes, yes. Let's all lean in to give kids what they really need and want, more listening, more understanding, and more connecting. This podcast is an extension of the book, Dear Highlights, What Adults Can Learn from 75 Years of Letters and Conversations with Kids, available now wherever books are sold. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and please leave a review to help us reach more grown-ups who care about kids. Special thanks to the producer of this podcast, Hilary Bates, and also to our audio engineer, Ted Weckbacher.